Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I want to thank Community Trust Bank of Texas, and they're represented here today by two of their senior executives, the President and CEO, Van Pardue, and Ford Hall, Executive Vice President. Please stand, gentlemen, to be recognized. And as always, I want to thank American Airlines, the official airline of the World Affairs Council in Hyatt Summerfield Suites for their support. That's the Dallas Lincoln Park location. And uh, as always, please do remember to do what with your cell phones when you leave today's event? Turn them on. Thank you, Mel. Um, I'm pleased to be back in Dallas, and let me thank you and, and, and Jessica and, and Jim Falk for making this possible. You contacted me, I think it was two years ago, and I was in the middle of writing a book, still another book. Each book I hope would be my last, but I keep on going. And uh, so I, I had to put off coming here until I finished the book, and I'm, it's now done, and hopefully I'll come back here soon and try and sell copies of it. Uh, in the meantime, you've got the Pakistan book is, is sitting over there. Um, I'm also happy that the, the, uh, that the um, American Jewish Committee is one of the co-sponsors, and I happen to serve on an advisory committee to the AJC in, in Washington. Um, I'm pleased to be back in Dallas. Uh, I was here four or five years ago, and at that point I, I drew on my book, the Pakistan book, and I compared um, uh, Punjabis, the dominant group in Pakistan and also in India, with a, as a combination of New Yorkers and Texans. <laughs> and I, I meant it as a compliment to all three, so happy to be back here. Uh, and I know you're going to have Vonda Felbad Brown here next week or in a couple of weeks. Uh, she's just a marvelous colleague and good friend of mine. Um, today I want to tell you three stories. Uh, so relax, don't look out the window, enjoy the meal, because there may be an exam after, after the three stories. And after, after each story, I'm going to ask some questions. I'll provide some answers. Yeah, okay, yeah, uh, that better, okay. Yeah, I'm going to tell you three stories, and after each story, I want to, I'll, I'll I'm going to ask some questions. I'll answer some of them, but I hope that you'll answer some of them also. And the three stories, uh, let me start with the first story. Um, uh, the first story is about a rising India. Uh, uh, people have invented the term Chindia to describe the, the phenomena of a rising India and a rising China. And this rising India has a strategic relationship with the United States. Secretary Clinton was in India uh, a year ago. Uh, the Indian foreign minister is going to be in, in the United States in June. We're going to have a function at Brookings to host him. Uh, in a sense, India is our new strategic ally. Some, some people call it a natural alliance between the United States and India. Why is this the case? Uh, Indian, India is a leader in high technology and software. Many of you here are involved in that business and know the, know the Indian phenomena. There's a thriving manufacturing presence in India. Uh, your next Rolls-Royce or Jaguar or, uh, or Land Rover may be made in India or made by an Indian company. 
Indian companies are buying up many American firms or, and, re, and taking out of war, out of obsolete American enterprises and, and make, turning them into a profit. This began in the hotel business, but now it's extending to manufacturing and steel. And two years ago, I was in New Mexico and drove by a steel mill, which had been bought by an Indian company. It's being modernized and put online as a, as a, as a new company. Uh, there's a huge Indian middle class. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Many of, and, and, and about 200 million people in the Indian middle class. Some people say after China, this is the largest middle class in, in the world. Uh, and many of that middle class have ties in the United States. And we see some of them around here. Uh, many Indians migrated to the United States over the years, and uh, there's a deep cultural social tie between the United States and India based on these human ties between Indian Americans and Americans who have ties in India. My, for my, my own family, I can say that one of my kids uh, it works for an Indian company. My daughter is opening up a branch of an American company in New Delhi, and I've got a son who's a professor of Indian studies. So I've, I've done my, my, my share of this, of this new, new relationship. Also, I've got a son who's a professor of Indian history up, up in Utah, but we don't count him. He's just a professor. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think this is summed up by the phrase that was invented by an Indian prime minister a number of years ago. India and the United States are natural allies, natural allies, a phrase that's been repeated ad nauseum by Indians and Americans, officials and non-officials. I always ask, what, what is an unnatural ally? Yeah, I'm supposed to a natural ally. Well, the questions are, the questions are really, uh, I'd say, four, four, at least four questions. Have we exaggerated India's emergence? Do we see more than there is there? Uh, and the answer, I think, is maybe. I think that India's been hyped extremely hard, and often by American companies, and Indian companies see this as a good business strategy. The reality is more difficult. I've just finished a book on Indian military modernization, which will be on sale at that table in a year or two, we hope. And uh, really, there's been a great uh, you know, exaggeration of India's potential as a market for American military goods. Last night, I had dinner with, with somebody uh, who had hoped to sell India a couple of hundred million dollars worth of equipment, but I, I urged him to be patient and cautious. So I think that the Indian, we've exaggerated India's emergence as an economic power. It is arising and it's transformed from the old India, but it's, it's still not quite like China, for example. And I think thoughtful Indians understand that the Chindia word really conflates two countries which are still quite different. Secondly, um, do we overestimate India as an ally? There is an alliance with India, a strategic alliance with India, but it has no content. The, the alliance really is good relations, uh, maybe some agriculture technology from the United States to India. And, of course, the things I've mentioned, uh, the ties between the middle classes of India and America, uh, business opportunities. But that's not a strategic alliance. That's a, 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 that's a series of good relations. Um, um, thirdly, has India solved its domestic problems? It's assumed that India is the shining India, which was a phrase used by one of the Indian political parties, that all Indians are prosperous, growing, will absorb American technology, are just like Americans. It is true that in, of the countries of the world, Indians are the most pro-American by any standard, even more so than many European countries. But are all Indians wealthy and, and prosperous? Uh, the answer is no. India still has half of the world's poorest people. Uh, India still has a huge discrepancy between its, I think, I think there's 25 or 30 billionaires now in India, more so than China and, and the masses of India. So there is a 200 million population of middle-class Indians, but there's also a 500 million, 400 million population of very poor people. And this has created huge stresses and strains within India. I'm not sure if it reached, received much press coverage here, but uh, I think it was about two weeks ago. It's not for me. Okay. No. About two weeks ago, uh, 
a battalion of Indian paramilitary forces were slaughtered. Seventy-five soldiers were just killed by some by left-wing revolutionaries in South India, Central India. So that was the first public, uh, really sensational event, which brought everybody's attention to the the unhappiness and and revolutionary potential for big parts of India. The prime minister identified this as India's greatest security problem about four years ago. Nobody paid any attention to it. But it is a serious security problem for India, besides Pakistan and China. So I think that uh, India has a huge domestic insecurity problem, which does not prevent it from actually doing all the other shining things and good things that we expect of India. So um, should we be optimistic about India on the whole? I'd say yes. Uh, clearly optimist, optimistic, but realistic about India's successes and potential. When I went to India in '63, uh, it was not only the world's poorest country of any consequence, but also wasn't getting any richer at all. And for, I think, 40 years, 30 years or so, I saw India stagnating. But about 1992, 91-92, led by Manmohan Singh, the present prime minister, he was in finance minister, India changed its economic policy, liberalized, and the, and the growth spurt began. When I wrote my India Emerging Power book, uh, I checked with people like Boeing and others who would sell, were selling airplanes to both China and to India. And Boeing people said to me, um, it's a good Chicago corporation, by the way, from Chicago. Uh, Boeing said that, uh, said that given the fact that India was 20 years behind China in liberalizing its economy, it was right on track. I've kept that in mind, and India is 20 years after China, right on track. So when Indians compare themselves to China, which is just off the scale in terms of economic growth, uh, you know, there's a lot missing, but I think that they will catch up eventually. You know, they're, they're right on the same track as the Chinese were. Of course, if you look at it at another dimension, democrat democratic politics, India is off the scale in terms of democracy. Maybe too much democracy, but it is there. You know, it's just an astonishing phenomenon to see a billion people governing themselves through the ballot box, and uh, clearly it's one of the great success stories of, of history. Now, let me tell you another story. Uh, and this story is, um, pardon my using this, but uh, this story is called Pakistan. And I'll, I'll approach it from a different way, but you can see that I could have done it the other way also. Um, Pakistan is seen as the epicenter of terrorism uh, in the world. Al-Qaeda is housed, is housed there. It moved from Afghanistan to Pakistan. The Taliban are based in Pakistan. Many of the Taliban are based in Pakistan. The Afghan Taliban have roots in Pakistan. That's where they became Taliban, at a, at a, at a Pakistani madrasa. And now there's a Pakistan Taliban, which, which is attacking the state of Pakistan itself. These are Pakistanis, whereas the Afghan Taliban are Afghan citizens. Um, there's also a sectarian war going on in Pakistan. Uh, Simplify it. It's, uh, in a sense, Saudi-backed Sunnis against uh, uh, Iran-backed Shias. Huge sectarian violence between these two sects of Islam, which has caused many, many casualties in, in Pakistan over the years. It makes it a very insecure place for both Sunnis and Shias. Uh, Pakistan is the course of regional instability by its support of terrorist groups. Uh, that is, based in Pakistan, you know, groups have struck at the Afghan, uh, Afghanistan, the Taliban, and of course the Lashkar-e-Taiba, a Pakistan-based group, Pakistan-sponsored group at one point, is based in Pakistan, which, which carried out the attack in the hotels in Mumbai in 2008. So we could argue that Pakistan is the epicenter of regional, ex regional, uh, regional terrorism and also destabilization. Finally, Pakistan has been a military-run state for most of its history. Uh, at least 50-60% of its history, although there's a civilian government there now. So it's not a, not a democracy. And, and uh, last, last but not least, uh, Pakistan has been one of the greatest nuclear rogues in, the, in history. 
uh, well, the Chinese provided nuclear technology to Pakistan, but the Pakistanis passed it on to a whole range of countries. We know that the Syrians got some, the Libyans may have got some, not the Syrians, the Libyans got some, the Iraqis probably got some, uh, uh, and a couple of other states that we're not quite sure about received help, help from Pakistan, specifically from Dr. A.Q. Khan, who's the, and it was, it was the Walmart of, of, um, of, of nuclear proliferation. Now, um, so this is a portrait of Pakistan, quite different than that of India. Now, I'll ask some questions. Um, uh, was the U.S. alliance with Pakistan, which began in the 1950s, beneficial to Pakistan? Did it cre help create some of these negative qualities of Pakistan? The answer is yes. That is, the Pakistanis realize, you know, Pakistanis have known this, but Americans don't quite realize it, that we were in part responsible indirectly for Pakistan's misdirection. The alliance warped Pakistani politics. It strengthened the military in Pakistan, weakened the civilians in Pakistan. The alliance uh, moved Pakistani politics to the right. Uh, they, they clamped down ruthlessly on, ruthlessly on left-wing parties. And the alliance generally strengthened a military government, which then uh, was Punjabi-dominated, the major province of Pakistan, and created resentment among Sindhis, Baluch, and, and others in Pakistan. So the United States alliance did warp Pakistani politics. Um, it also tilted the, the priorities of Pakistan towards military spending. And our military aid program to Pakistan was always substantial, but we never provided much in the way of civilian aid to Pakistan. Our priorities were, were the military defense policy because we saw Pakistan as the bulwark against communism. Pakistan was an ally both against the Soviet Union and then China. And ironically, one of the great ironies of history, Pakistan then became a friend because it provided the, the gateway to China. Henry Kissinger staged through Pakistan to go on his way to China in the opening to China of Richard Nixon. Uh, so in a sense, you know, Pakistan, you know, Pakistan benefited from the alliance marginally, but uh, in a sense, I think on balance, it, it was hurt by, by its, its ties with the United States. Um, secondly, Pakistan is probably the country least prepared to deal with what we call globalization. If you look around the world at the countries that have been hit by globalization, many have benefited, many have prospered. I think India would be a country that, that benefited from globalization. India had a huge educated middle class, which then turned to software and other, other technologies and, and benefited from it. It became a great success story in India. Pakistan didn't have that. And the Pakistan government never took it upon itself to educate its population so it could take advantage of the economic side of globalization. Then there was negative globalization. Uh, globalization means the movement of ideas, people, and goods rapidly around the world. And to me, the three great inventors of this of this process were the transistor, uh, Bell Labs, the Boeing company, the wide-body jet, and the guy who invented uh, the the, the, uh, the container vessel, who's McFall or something, I forget his name. So these three technologies, the, the transistor, which allows for miniaturization of electronic devices, the wide-body jet, which allows you to move people rapidly and cheaply around the world, and of course the container ship, which allows, which allows the Chinese to sell us everything they make, uh, you know, and we buy it happily. That, that All three trends affected Pakistan negatively. They didn't have anything that, to make that anybody wanted to buy except, 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 uh, except cloth, garments, and there, there, um, there's a problem with that also. Uh, the the wide-body jet and the transmission of people enabled Pakistanis to commute between Pakistan and London and other countries where they where they brought the terrorist seas with them. 
Now, the British tell me that uh, something like 50, 60 percent of their terrorist incidents in, in, in the UK are Pakistan-related, and most of those stem from the northwest frontier province. So you can, if you're a terrorist, you hop on a jet, and you go off and do your terrorism, and then you come back and you know, safe and happy. So this movement of people had a negative impact for Pakistan because it became the source of many terrorist groups around the world. Ironically, not too far from where I grew up in Chicago, uh, a Pakistani-American used wide bodies jets to commute from the United States to India where he served as a spy for a, for a Pakistani terrorist group and, uh, they, and resulted in the bombing of the, of the hotels, hotel hotels there. Uh, in terms of ideas, um, while my kids are online, your kids are online surfing and listening and reading you know, to the global, the global network on, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the web, so are, so are terrorists and, and they've taken advantage of the web especially in Pakistan with a lot of, lot of connections, uh, to in a sense learn about and become radicalized on the web. So globalization actually had a negative impact on Pakistan in many ways, and they have yet to figure out how to capitalize on the positive benefits of, of, of globalization. Um, and finally, uh, is, Pakistan, is Pakistan a nuclear rogue? It was a nuclear rogue, clearly, uh, but it is no longer a nuclear rogue. We have to take at face value of Pakistani statements that they've got their nuclear weapons under control uh, and that they're locked under good lock and key. And I, th I, I believe Pakistanis when they say that. What happened in the past was true, but uh, certainly I think the future is going to be different. So on balance, in doing a balance sheet, should we write Pakistan off as a hopeless, dangerous state? I'd say no. I think that there's still uh, room for optimism, qualified optimism optimist in the case of Pakistan, because it never was the kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, self-destructive, hate, uh, hateful state that many people portray it. I'd say Indians in particular have a wrong image of Pakistan. Pakistanis are a lot like Indians, except they don't have some of the educational qualifications of Indians. It's, Pakistan is basically a South Asian country, and South Asian culture, South Asian habits, South Asian philosophy, is really accommodationist. It's not, it's not polarizing. I think it's quite different than the Arab world, for example. Um, so I think Pakistan can't be written off as a, as a failed state. Uh, uh, that would imply a series of policies which are unimaginable at this moment. Above all, you know, the nuclear weapons make it impossible to ignore Pakistan. Uh, I testified before Congress a couple of years ago, and I said, I said, this is Pakistan's policy. Help me or else. And I had to tell the the court reporter, you know, the 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 the, the person, the uh, the the, uh, the witness is holding his finger up to the head. It's a gun, and and you know, Pakistan's you know, Pakistan used to be used to have a claim on our alliance and our and our support because it was the most powerful, moderate Muslim country in the Islamic world. Now it has a claim on our on our pocketbooks and our and our policies because it's powerful and Islamic, but also coming apart at the seams and has nuclear weapons. So. Pakistan can't be ignored for that reason, and I think there's still uh, some optimism due in the case of Pakistan. For example, this last two years or year and a half of this civilian government, uh, President Zardari's government, by and large the performance has been amazing, despite the corruption, despite the rumors, despite Zardari's you know, reputation as a corrupt politician. It's been an amazing performance, and they've undone a lot of the damage that was perpetrated on Pakistan over the past 15, 20 years. So I'm, I have qualified optimism for Pakistan. Um, I can talk further about that in the Q&A. Let me get to the third story now. Okay, the third story is, I, I had this typed on separate pages, but I left that home naturally, so here's the page. The third story is this. Once upon a time, good story, tell this to my kids. There was, a, there was a state that had good relations with two neighbors that were always quarreling. Guess who they are, and guess what state that is. 
uh, this state could have been the United States. And the two quarreling rivals, rivals could have been Israel and Palestine, South Korea and Japan, Greece and Turkey, France and Germany, or it could be India and Pakistan. In the case of the American, American policy between all those other pairs, the French, the Germans, the Italians, the Greeks, the North South Koreans, and, and, and Japan, and, and so and Israel and the Palestinian and the Arab world generally, and the Palestinians in particular, the United States evolved a series of mechanisms, you know, not consciously perhaps, but stumbled into them, whereby we became the facilitator and, and a factor in their relationship. And uh, I guess I guess the euphemism would be friends don't like fr don't friends don't let friends drive drunk. We had two drunk, drunk friends who were driving drunk, and we did our best to take away the keys and put them in the right path. So I think the mechanisms were as follows. Um, um, first, there was an alliance. In the case of NATO, uh, that, that took care of the Greeks and the Turks. They were both in the same alliance. We were facing a communist threat. So we could go to each of them and say, cool your dispute on Cyprus, because we have a larger, larger problem, that is the, the communist, communist, Soviet communist aggression. In the case of the, uh, of the South Koreans and the, and the Japanese, again, there was an alliance with each of them. They weren't in the same alliance, but we were alliance partners with both of them. And there, of course, the threat was, was, was aggressive communist China. Uh, and we could argue with both, you know, have good relations or at least polite relations because we need you both in this, in this struggle against expanding, expanding communist China. Uh, finally, thirdly, there was intense diplomacy. A lot of Americans spent a lot of time managing these alliances, alliances between countries which are hostile to each other. And finally, there was organizational, there were organizational uh, arrangements. We organized ourselves in dealing with these countries, often through the alliance framework, so that their, their dispute with each other would not affect our relations with each, or minimize the harm to the relation with each, and also maximize their role as a factor in our global foreign policy. So that, that's how we manage these, 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 these paired conflicts. Um, now the question is, uh, that's, the, that's the story, the question is, is the United States prepared to do the same for India and Pakistan? Do we want to be in a position where we can serve as a go-between or a friend of both countries to ameliorate or moderate their disputes? I'd say yes. We're not yet ready for it, but I think that's going to come very soon. Uh, and it will, I hope, take place in the next couple of years. Now, I use the word hope advisedly. As one of the great men I worked for in my life, um, I didn't work for many of them. You know, I was a professor, so I didn't work for. I, didn't, I was basically self-employed. Um, but one of the great men I worked for was George Schultz. I worked in the policy planning staff in my two years in government, uh, two years which I don't regret having done, but have mixed memories of. And but Schultz once once told us, he said, "Hope is not a policy." And I thought about that. And I said, "He's right. You know, hope is not a policy." And the Clinton administration had a variant on that. I guess they said good intentions were not a policy. So no matter how much hope you have, no matter how many good intentions you have, you have to have a policy. That is, what should we be doing? And I think that's what Schultz was asking us when we came to him with some issue. And he said, hope is not a policy. I'd say there are four things we need to do in terms of putting ourselves in a position where we can play some kind of useful role in the India-Pakistan relationship. First is organizational. That's the simplest uh, thing to do. Uh, right now, we have an arrangement whereby the two major military commands, CENTCOM and PACOM, Central Command based in Florida, but actually covers the Middle East, and PACOM based in Hawaii, hardship post if there ever was one, uh, uh, deal with different parts of the world. And there's a line that's drawn between India and Pakistan, and I know the guy who drew the line. And CENTCOM has everything on this side of the line, that is Pakistan, Afghanistan, the Middle East, and, and PACOM, Pacific Command, has everything on that side of the line. India, China, 
Japan, the Philippines, and so forth. And never the twain shall meet. And I regularly brief people in the Pentagon. They have this incredible video conference system where you sit in an office in a, in a, in a secure room in the Pentagon and you talk to people all around the world. And I've done several of these. One, with, one set with PECOM people. I talked about India. The other set with CENTCOM people. I talked about Pakistan. It's, it's mind-boggling. And I keep on telling them as a joke. Some of them don't have a sense of humor. Uh, that you ought, to, you ought to meet each other because you, you guys have an interest in, in, in the same region. I've offered to introduce them to each other, and they tell me that, in fact, there is some liaison now between CENTCOM and PECOM. So I think there's an organizational problem in the military, and since the military carry much of our weight in these, this part of the world, it's critical. Um, there's also an organizational problem in the State Department. Uh, when, the, when the Obama administration came in, it, Hillary uh, created a special representative for Af Afghanistan, Pakistan, AFPAC. His name is Richard Holbrook, an amazingly talented, uh, you know, effective man. And, uh, but Holbrook deals with only part of the region. He deals with AFPAC. Uh, and the rest of the region, South Asia, is dealt with by, by a very fine Assistant Secretary of State, Bob Blake. So in a sense, the division, we've divided the region both in the military terms and our political terms, that Holbrook's writ does not include India, nor does it include India-Pakistan relations as such. And Blake's writ does not include Pakistan although theoretically it does, but because Holbrook is in charge of it, Holbrook outranks Blake. You know, Blake, is, Blake has a minor role there. So I think that there's an organizational problem, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I have a solution to it. I would begin by getting rid of the name AFPAC, because there's no such region in the world. And if you use the term AFPAC, uh, which I think derives directly from the president's own interest in the region, you immediately put the wrong country in the priority line. It's not Afghanistan that's important, it's Pakistan that's important. And uh, it should be PAC-F, or it should be PAC-PAC, basically. In a sense, our interests in, in Pakistan are far more important than our interest in Afghanistan. And while I support the war in Afghanistan, I think it's probably a good war, but we, which we may not win. Uh, I think the outcome, of the outcome of the situation in Pakistan is far more important for us than that in Afghanistan. Um, so I think that organizationally, in a sense, we need to th rethink how we deal with the region. Uh, part of the problem was that the Bush administration invented the term uh, um, dehyphenation, partly to please the Indians, uh, who were always irritated at being hyphenated with Pakistan, Indo-Pak, Pak-India. They really didn't like it, because that equated them with Pakistan. And Indians saw themselves as zooming ahead and competing with China. So the Bush administration used the term dehyphenation. So we dealt with Pakistan on one hand you know, and India on the other hand. And basically, you know, our psychology is that uh, India and Pakistan are on different planets. We have different bureaucracies dealing with them. We treat them in different ways. Yet we have a strategic relationship with both of them. Uh, and this is analogous, I think, to the situation we faced with the Greeks and the Turks, who were at odds with each other, almost went to war with each other or, over, over, over Cyprus and so forth. So I think there has to be an organizational change. Secondly, um, uh, Secondly, I think we have a conceptual problem. Um, let me, I think the presidents have misread the region. And, and Obama, who I admire greatly, I, uh, really created a large part of the problem by focusing on Afghanistan as the epicenter of America's foreign policy problem rather than Iraq. If you remember during the primary, he was running against other Democrats, but also running against George Bush. And he introduced the notion that it wasn't Iraq stupid. It was it was it was Afghanistan. That's where the bad guys were. That's where the war is being fought. And, and Bush was at fault for having got us involved in war in, Af in, in Iraq, which I happen to agree with. Um, 
But, but because the president focused on Afghanistan, everybody then looked to Pakistan as a neighboring country which in, where we, we didn't have access to Afghanistan except through Pakistan. So there, that was born the AFPAC region. And the, and the borderline between them is regarded as the most critical area in the world. I think that's just nonsense, personally, um, from a larger strategic perspective. So I think that the original conceptual fault was the president's. I think his, I think he was, I think his heart in the right place, but he did not know much about foreign policy. I think it was a mistake to define it as AFPAC. It was a, it was right to focus on Afghanistan, but not Pakistan. Had, the whole problem had to be had to be has to be framed in a different way. Um, And finally, uh, just say one final word uh, about this, the, the way in which you got involved in the region. Every administration uh, since really the administration I served in, uh, the, the Reagan administration, has seen India and Pakistan as a, an area of crisis. And when we are interested in it, we're interested in it to avoid, prevent another India-Pakistan crisis. This is especially true after they went nuclear. And the Bush administration, the first Bush, the, I'm sorry, the, the uh, Reagan administration, the first Bush administration, the second Bush administration, the Clinton administration, and now, the, now this administration, all see the a crisis between India and Pakistan as, as driving our relationship with both. I think that I think I think we, I think that's the I think that's the wrong approach. Uh, let me let me shake, let me describe three elements or four elements of what I think a regional policy could be. A true regional policy could be. First of all, um, has to be comprised of um, we have a common interest in each country about their nuclear weapons. And I think we've addressed each of them separately. Maybe that's the way it has to be about their nuclear nuclear programs. But I think an element of American policy is driven by our concern about their nuclear nuclear rivalry and the, and the spread of their nuclear technology to other countries. So that's the first element we have in common. That's the first element, of, uh, first uh, basis of policy. Secondly, we do share with India and Pakistan, and I think this should be highlighted. Uh, we have a common anti-terrorist policy. Both India and Pakistan have been badly effect affected by terrorism. India, primarily by terrorists coming from Pakistan, but also its own homegrown terrorists. Uh, and of course, Pakistan affected by its, its terrorists uh, who are trying to bring down the Pakistani state. And of course, a lot of this spills over to the United States. And, and we're, so I think there's a common element of our policy in terrorism. The third common element is water uh, and environment. And this is something which I've been pushing for a long time. And amazingly, the Pakistan government has picked this up, and, and now they talk about water rather than India as, as when they talk about the, you know, what America should be doing. Uh, both countries face critical water shortages and critical environmental degradation. And I think this should be a, plat a plank of American policy to assist both countries in working together, if necessary, if possible, in helping to manage their water problem. This has the, the virtue, in fact, of involving other countries as well because the Bangladeshis and Nepalis all are vitally, vitally dependent on the water flow from the Himalayas. And of course, China is where the water comes from. And the Chinese are, are suspected greatly by everybody of diverting the water for, to, to, to Tibet. So there's a massive regional problem in terms of water access and, and just distribution of the waters. I think the Americans can provide some, some technical and some policy <coughs> intervention on that, on that issue. And finally, I'd say you know, most important, uh, not most important, but as important as the others, is that for the first time you can look at both India and Pakistan and say, we share the same values. Uh, we've always been able to say this with the Indians because India's been the world's largest democracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, and of course, this has been when you, when you don't have anything else to say with Indians, you talk about the world's largest democracy and the world's oldest democracy. It's 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 a staple of, of, of political of, of, of diplomatic rhetoric for years. Uh, but in the case of Pakistan, we can talk about that now, because Pakistanis are are now edging towards democracy, a very bad democracy, a weak democracy, but they've managed a year and a half of, of I'd say more or less democratic rule. They've had the second democratic election in their history. It's a country that's almost 60 years old, so it's quite an accomplishment. So I think that the Indian policy of, of wanting to deal with the Pakistani military dictators is now obsolete. In a sense, America should show an example by dealing with the Pakistani politicians and civilians, not simply the military. We have to deal with the military, but we should also bring in civilians as well. So I think democracy is a common element that we have shared with the Indians and, and Pakistanis. And be, there's a big emergence of being of thought between Indians and Pakistanis that they share this with themselves. Most Pakistani civilians see India as a role model. And the model is how do you manage, the problem is how do you manage a multi-ethnic, complicated society with many, that speaks many languages peacefully without, without oppression. Uh, and here the Indians have done it marvelously. We do it also, but the Indians have done it even more marvelously because it's a more complex society than the U.S. And the Pakistanis, I think some Pakistanis see this as a model for them. Not the military, I think they're the long ways from this, but this is a model to govern a, a, a complex, complex, uh, complex society in, in that part of Asia. So these are my four sto three stories, my many questions, uh, and some answers to the questions. I think I've laid out enough for us to think about and discuss for a couple of weeks, but I only have a couple of hours. So why don't I stop now? Thank you for your patience and, and turn to questions. Okay. Uh, now, how we uh, our procedure here, how we do this so as to entertain the maximum number of questions. We'll take three questions at a time, and uh, then uh, our speaker will address them in, in whatever order he wishes. Uh, and we, well, we always want to state just our questions, not any editorial accompaniment. So uh, this is to save everybody's time. Now, we have with us today, as we have had this season, we have a group of uh, students from uh, high school here and who in advance posed some questions on cards. So how we do this, I'll, get, I'll read one question from the high school students, and then we'll take two from the audience, then one another from there and two from there. So I will start, I will start this way. Um, uh, this, uh, this question is from Shobita Gupta of Clark High School. How do you think Pakistan's government will play out over the course of the next decade? Will it stabilize or will turmoil continue to plague that country? These questions at the high school kids are really something. Okay, uh, we're in paying questions now. Here, right here. One, wouldn't you say all of these turmoils between the two countries uh, took place with the division and the refugees, et cetera? And then I wanted to go on to say, yes, India has this great democracy, but Pakistan was Dardari being the widower of Madame Bhutto, who was assassinated, whose father was executed. There is this terrible um, non-democratic, but rather dialect, uh, area, and can we play a role, the U.S. and Holbrook, et cetera, in really keeping a stable government? All right, next question. Uh, uh, middle, right there. Yeah. Yes, um, uh, I, I was just wondering uh, if you uh, believe that uh, some elements of the ISI 
the uh, Pakistani uh, um, Secret Service. I'm uh, is still trying they're, to help. They're not so secret. The, uh, the, uh, the uh, terrorist organization in Pakistan, Lakshmi, um, uh, I can't Last time. Do I I'll answer all three. Gordon, you get here, let's go for the mic here. Yeah, Shoba, um, I'm just starting a research project on the future of Pakistan. And it'll be Pakistan 2011 to 2020. So let's talk in about six months from now, okay? No, but I, if, if, I, if, I, if I knew, if I, if I could answer your question, I wouldn't have to do the research. And I've been agonizing over this question of what the future of Pakistan is going to be. I don't know. I do know that if it's really negative, we're all in deep trouble. India, India in particular is in deep trouble. Because again, it's a country that's capable of generating a, a terrorist production line all over the, for all over the, all, and, and Lashkar-e Taiba is now a global, global organization, not simply a Pakistani organization. And of course they have the nuclear weapons. So nobody, the, the good thing is, you know, the bad, that's the bad news. The good news is that nobody wants Pakistan to fail. Even the Indians don't want Pakistan to fail because a failed Pakistan would be catastrophic for India. So I can't give you a good answer, but I can, you know, well, six months from now, I'll be able to give you a better answer. Um, Pakistan's history, yeah, I think that, uh, I'm not sure if I can answer your question correctly, but uh, there was a U.S. role. Uh, we're partly culpable for this. I knew Benazir very well. Uh, I, know, I know Zardari, but not quite as well. Um, and I think we were responsible for her death indirectly. That is, when, when we saw that Musharraf was failing as a leader, and he was incompetent, really, our, but he was our leader, our incompetent leader. So we wanted, we wanted to keep him on in power. So we suddenly turned to Benazir, and all of a sudden we identified her as a suitable partner for, for, for Pakistan. She would be prime minister, uh, uh, Musharraf would be president. That fingered her as the target for the terrorists. Who were trying to get Musharraf anyways, and that that made that made her stand out from all the other Pakistani politicians. So in a sense, our policy contributed to this to, indirectly to her death. We didn't wish it, of course. You know, there's, there's, you know, we we saw her as a last result, last resort to save Musharraf. So what we should have done was simply say, any Pakistani politician, whether he's right wing or left wing or Islamic or not, who abides by the constitution, and is willing to stay within the law. We we would support them. We support the Pakistani democratic political process. We didn't. We, we singled her out as, the, as our person, and I think we made her a target. Uh, third question was ISI. Um, it's become a regional organization, not simply Pakistani, uh, uh, Lashkari Taiba. Lashkari Taiba was founded by the Pakistan Army, the intelligence services, to go into Kashmir and make things difficult for the Indians. But they, they seem to be, their role model seems to be Al-Qaeda. That's what my colleague Bruce Rydell argues, that, that Lashkari Taiba says a larger role. And they're op they've operated in other parts of South Asia besides India, uh, and they may be turning against the Pakistan government itself. I mean, the great the great fear in Pakistan is that the people they created as terrorists, or they would call them freedom fighters. I worked for a president who said, literally said, one man terrorist, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, because we were supporting freedom fighters, but the other guys were supporting terrorists. So the, the Lashkar-e Taiba were Pakistan's freedom fighters, but they're now turning against the Pakistan government, as are other groups in Pakistan. Because they they cannot stand a moderate, uh, fairly secular Pakistan. Are they funded by? They used to be funded by the military, but now all of these groups have their own independent sources of funding. The the, the sectarian ones, uh, the ones who are extreme Sunni or extreme Shia, probably get money from the Middle East and from from Iran. 
there's no evidence of this, but that seems to be. But many of them get money because they're they're they're, they're linked to charitable organizations. This has been true of Hamas and others, where they have a charitable front. And I've seen them. They have collection boxes outside of mosques. You know, donate to the boys. Uh, this is like the, the IRA. IRA did this also. They raised money here for the for for for, for you know for for charity in 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 Northern Ireland. But in fact, a lot of it went to the IRA itself. So, um, so that they get their money independently, but I'm not sure if the Pakistan government is funding them at all. I, I coined the phrase the, the ISI Alumni Association because every intelligence agency in the world has had trouble with its former employees, their alumni, CIA employees, and so forth. Often they go off as contract workers, and then you, know, you lose control over them. I think that's been the case in, in Pakistan. Um, you mentioned uh, Kashmir in one of your answers. That it, uh, one of our high schoolers uh, asked the question, what is the role that Kashmir plays between India and Pakistan? That's from Jacqueline Markabali of Clark High School. Now we'll take two more questions. Uh, lady right here. So uh, you have a writing program, Pakistan's economy is and the irony is Pakistan has received close to $17 billion in the last few years because of uh, the U.S. fighting the war on terror and we have to provide them economic assistance. So my question is, what incentive Pakistan really has in curbing the terrorism? Yeah. They seem to be in a sweet spot. Uh, they, they don't have any motivation. They can generate more terrorism and in return get more money. And going one step further, what incentive, why, there could be a possibility where some section of Pakistani army in fact may be providing an organized shelter to Osama bin Laden. Has it been ruled out? One more question. Uh, right so uh, you talked about the cultural similarity between uh, Indians and Pakistanis, and that is true. But off late, uh, the Pakistanis seem to draw solace from the Wahhabi Islam that flows out of Saudi Arabia. And uh, the, the, I was in India for a long time uh, this year, and you could see the proliferation of mosques. And uh, what I hear from my uh, friends and relatives is there's a lot of money flowing in from Saudi Arabia. And that really distorts the more culturally tolerant version of Islam that grew in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. And you haven't really talked about that much. Um, okay. Okay. No. Uh, let me take that one first uh, briefly. Um, I haven't because it, it's important, but I can't do everything and talk like this. But you're right that uh, money has come in from the Gulf, often by uh, expatriate workers, to India and Pakistan, and often the first thing that is built is a mosque. Now most of these mosques are just mosques; they're totally innocuous. There's nothing nefarious about them. Uh, but in in Saudi Arabia, in particular, also UAE, United Arab Emirates. There are some private donors that do want to fund radical radical mosques. And uh, the governments are sort of helpless in dealing with this because it's private charity. It's, it's like it's like our same status as our private charities. And the both governments, Pakistan and India, are trying to monitor this as best they can. And they are the source of some radicalism in both countries, I agree with you. But uh, most of these mosques are simply innocuous, They're the Islamic mosque. And the better ones actually teach, with the madrasas attached to them actually teach science and, and, and other other subject modern subjects the worst actually just provide rote training of, of the Quran without any any additional skills uh, but in the this more especially the case in Pakistan so it is it is a problem second uh, second question um, go backwards Kashmir is a um, 
Kashmir is the cause and the consequence of the India-Pakistan rivalry. That is, it used to be the cause, that is, they both could agree that they had a dispute on Kashmir, but the, the dispute has gotten much broader, and it, it, it pertains to their different identities. There are about six or seven different reasons for the, for the India-Pakistan dispute, and Kashmir is one of them. Uh, you know, historically, uh, India was founded as a secular democratic state. Pakistan was founded as a Islamic state. But Pakistanis have never been able to agree on which kind of Islam would dominate. And that's, that, that's led to d debates and actually battles in Pakistan. And that, you know, that means that, that the most extreme Islam often wins, extreme philosophy often wins. So this, this has made it difficult for, to normalize Kashmir and in lar larger India-Pakistan relationship. I'd like to put it as the problem is not simply Kashmir, because if you solve Kashmir, you still have a larger problem. The strategic normalization of India-Pakistan relations, where each side you know, no longer holds each, the other in, in, military, in military threat. They don't see each other as military threats. Uh, final question. Um, hmm, can't read my own notes. Second question was what? Uh, the sweet spot. Yeah, the sweet spot. Yeah, the, okay, the Pakistanis have been in this position where the worse they behave, the more money they get. You're right. Um, but, but the Americans, especially Congress, sees through that. And the, and the Kerry-Lugar bill, which was originally the Biden-Lugar bill, has criteria and measured criteria, and, and we're going to hold them to a high standard. We're not going to simply dump the money there. But I've talked to people who are involved in spending that billions of dollars, and their view is, and I agree with it, that even if we spend all the money properly, and, and which is going to be very hard to do, um, the Pakistan bureaucracy is not that well developed, it's going to be up to Pakistanis themselves to decide that they want to transform their country. That is, they're going to have to decide that they're going to invest in education, that it cut down some degree on corruption, although from, since I'm from Chicago, I can't be too hard on corruption. <laughs> it, 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 can, it can be functional. It, you can, yeah. it, can, it can go along with, with, with development. Um, Beniza, and they're going to have to, have to clamp down on education. And if pa the Pakistani elite does not want to do this, then the country is lost, no matter how much we want them to do, or it's even if the Indians were to cooperate. If they're, if, they're, if they're not going to decide that they're going to modernize their country, bring it into the 20th century, if not the 21st century, then Pakistan is going to, is going to disagree. And that's perhaps a better answer than the one I gave to you. Okay. Uh, our third series of, uh, third series of questions the, uh, from the high school. Um, how does the generation gap, the age difference, play a role in the situation between India and Pakistan are the youth as passionate in their antagonisms, or are they less? And that question is from Aradana Sahu of Clark High School. Great question. Uh, no, are they asked a real question. Okay. Uh, over there. Right here. Okay. Explain, uh, as you say, the stability and development of Pakistan is as important as uh, to India and other countries. Instead of giving billions of dollars, can we give them technology transfer and industrial infrastructure uh, uh, to make sure that the company is not misusing our billions of dollars from ESA? Um, at the same time, there are a lot of, lot of uh, uh, actually there are a lot of opportunities for them uh, to transform themselves instead of using this for terrorism activities. No. Okay. Third, uh, third question. Right there. Okay. What part, if any, will Turkey have in this relationship, especially if Turkey is becoming more secular? Mm -hmm. Less, I mean, less, less, less secular. Less secular. Less secular. Yeah. 
make sure we're talking about the same country. <laughs> uh, let's speak with that. Okay, just say, I don't know much about Turkey, uh, but I do know that Pakistan used to think itself as the as a Turkey. And Musharraf, when he became president or seized the country to military coup, he, Turkey was his model. But he soon abandoned that. He was photographed in his first public appearance holding a little dog. And the Islamists saw that, and they just went wild. And, and there were no dogs on, in, in view after that. You know, Muslims, Islamists hate dogs. You know, they're, they're regarded as very unclean. So I think that the Pakistani elite has now reached the point where it cannot even compare itself with Turkey, which is very frightening, because Turkey is, by all standards, a relatively moderate Islamic country. It's becoming more Islamic, but it's not an extremist country. Um, let's see, it's, I got the second... Uh, your question on the youth is really good, uh, and I do think that there's a difference between young people and the older generation. Uh, often these prejudices and these images are carried from generation to generation, but sometimes young people simply don't accept what their parents tell them because they're young people, which is a healthy attitude. You just reject whatever mom and dad tell you. So there's a, um, I know that's true in my family, huh? uh, there's a, uh, I think there's an important interest in each country now of younger people and curiosity. Uh, that wasn't there 15 or 20 years ago. And now it's easier to find out about the other country uh, through the internet, travel, and so forth. There's more and more. And I think eventually the relationship will normalize when enough people go back and forth. So I'm a great believer in people-to-people -people relations. I don't think it's the only, it's the only solution, but there is a, I think there is a big generation gap between the younger types and the older types. Uh, final, final question was um, tech transfer to Pakistan. To Pakistan that was, or to India? To Pakistan, yeah. Can we help Pakistanis modernize by technology transfer? I'm very skeptical. I I just finished a book on Indian military modernization, and the Indians believe strongly, as do a lot of people in the third world, that the key to success is technology. You simply tech your way to success, and I just think that's false. I think the key to success is organizational integrity. You need organizations, not technology. The organizations may not should have technology. But if, unless you have an honest, competent bureaucracy, you can't do anything, no matter how much technology you have. If you have a dishonest, incompetent bureaucracy, the technology will be sold in the black market tomorrow. So I think more important than technology is, is, is organizational integrity. On the other hand, there are huge areas now, the Indians have pioneered this better than anybody else, where technology cuts out, cuts down corruption. Indians have gone to a system of, of, of satellite measurement of land, eliminated a lot of land disputes in India. Uh, they put their, their, their land records on, on, on computer so people know, know exactly what they own and what they don't own. Big source of dispute in rural India. The Pakistanis did that. It, it, might, it might help them. But again, you've got to have a, a bureaucracy of considerable integrity to be able to do that. Okay. Can I ask a question on the generation gap plot? I've read a lot of reports on how the textbooks are fomenting yeah. violence yeah. in Pakistan because they're distorted yeah. and uh, can you comment on that? Because a lot of children get educated from books they read. If you think Texas has yeah. a problem, Pakistan yeah. has a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pakistani textbooks, are some of them are just have these weird images of India, and even of the United States. People have studied this. Fortunately, if that's the right word at this point, not many kids go to school in Pakistan. <laughs> yeah, so, so they're not reading the textbooks. And those that do go to school sort of dismiss them as propaganda. You know, Pakistani kids are, are not stupid. And the reality is that they watch Indian television, they see Indian, Indian videos. I buy all my Indian, pirate Indian videos in Pakistan. They're cheaper than even <laughs> India. So, so the information about the other countries there, 
And uh, the, bi the, bi the big unifier is, in fact, I should have added this to my list of, although America can't do it, but the big unifier would be cricket. And both Indians and Pakistanis, the national sport is cricket. Of course, America has no role in this whatsoever. We don't play cricket. You may have a Dallas team, but it's not going to be, it's not like the, it's, it's their pro football, basically. So uh, Indians follow the Pakistani cricket and vice versa. The Pakistanis were deeply injured, morally affronted, when the Indians refused to select any Pakistanis for their own cricket league. And they said, this is an insult to the Pakistan nation. How can you not do this? And it became a diplomatic incident. So I think that the Indians and Pakistanis have enough in common in terms of culture. Uh, the textbooks are a very, you know, a problem of this. And Pakistani officials recognize this, but they're written by local school authorities. Actually, they're actually they're written by the center, and it's hard to get this through because they have to pass through Islamist, Islamic boards, which are which conservative conservative elements organizations. So, it is. I just agree with you. Now for our final uh, high school question. This is from uh, Faith Michael of uh, GISD. Uh, she asked, referring to the economic uh, uh, a great advancement in India. Her question is, will the government of India uh, be able to retain that, to control that, and at the same time uh, uh, eliminate much of the poverty that uh, exists among that part of the Indian people? That's the high school question. And I will take, uh, we'll take two more questions now, uh, right here, okay? You, yeah. Dr. Cohen, I fully support your idea of role that America can, the U.S. can play as a facilitator. But to be a successful broker, you got to be an honest broker. And while one year back we had a one billion strong Obama fan club in India, if I could just quote a couple of recent Wall Street articles, there was a secret directive from the Obama administration to force India to start dialogue with Pakistan. And that whole business of trying to pressurize India to uh, do something with Pakistan always has a severe reaction in India. And the reaction which we saw in subsequent Wall Street Journal article written by one of India's top diplomats, Deepak Sati. Pardon me, pardon me, what is the question? Yeah, we need so yep. so, they, now, so they, uh -huh. he, he came and said that, look, is Obama really honest about it? So my question is, if this administration wants to play a role of a facilitator, it's got to be an honest role. And I think something similar is happening in other parts of the world as well. Okay, uh, right there, okay. One of the uh, nightmare scenarios is that the uh, ISI is so compromised that the Pakistanis lose control of their nuclear technology and their weaponry. How much confidence do you have that the Pakistani military can control the weaponry over a prolonged period of time? That's the, the question is, uh, how much confidence do I have that the Pakistan military can control weapons over a long period of time? I think that they can, assuming that their own integrity is not is not compromised. That is, if Pakistan were to enter into a period where the army itself began to fragment, or there's a civil war, or they, the general started taking sides, then it might be every corps commander for himself. At that point, the nuclear weapons become somebody's 401k. They become your ticket to Saudi Arabia. You know, here's my, here's two nuclear weapons. Please, how, please take me in. Or they they become a bomb on New Delhi. You know, you could go either way. So I th I'm confident that the army, as confident as you can be about these things, the army will take care of the weapons, unless the army itself is compromised. That's why the integrity of Pakistan as a whole is important. Yeah. Um, uh, 
it. Um, the Wall Street Journal article was curious, and it, it, it said that there was a White House directive or memo, in effect, uh, to put pressure on, on India regarding Pakistan. But we knew that all along. I mean, Holbrook has been going to India, and officials stated publicly that we'd like the Indians to ease up on Pakistan so that uh, Pakistan can divert more of its forces to the west, to the northwest frontier province, rather than facing the Indians. Um, and the Indians have you know, objected to that. I, I think that's, they've been concer they're concerned about that. But privately, in a sense, what America should be doing is going around the back door. Nobody should know, but maybe, maybe they're doing it, and I don't know about it, which, in which case I congratulate them, but I doubt it. Um, privately, we should have these pri private conversations with Indians and with Pakistanis to say, and describe the situation, as I've, as I've told you. We like both of you. You're both our friends. We know you don't like each other. But there are areas where we can all compromise, comp uh, 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 cooperate, even tacitly, even privately. And we, you'll be rewarded if you do that in some way or another, maybe this technology or that technology, because it's in our interest that you do that. So I think that's the strategy we, sh we should have, not a memo which is then leaked to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And I'm not sure of the accuracy of that memo. I have doubts about it myself. Uh, but the Indians are correct that the Obama administration sort of put India on a low, low, pro, low, low, low priority because it was AFPAC. It was AFPAC, and India was sort of a tertiary factor. To India was important because of Pakistan. Now, the Indians find this enormously insulting. If we would have said India is important because of China, they would have loved that. Had we gone to India and said, how can we balance China? You, you, the two democracies balance China, which was the Bush policy. But we went to them and say, "How can we balance? How can you help us on Pakistan, which is not, which is well, I, we had to do it, but the Indians reacted negatively. There was nothing in it for India. Actually, actually, I think there is something in it for India. And the present Indian Prime Minister, who was born in what is now Pakistan, he has said things and done things which indicate he wants to do this. He wants to have a normal relationship with with Pakistan. So we should we should be encouraging that kind of Indian view. The view you cited by Partha Sarathi. Uh, very anti, very anti-Pakistani, and there's a debate in India about normalizing with Pakistan. Uh, first question was um, Indian government controlling the growth. Yeah, uh, I think the Indian government will have nothing to do with growth. Uh, they're they're sort of getting out of the way and letting Indian businessmen grow grow the country. When I was in India, uh, there in '63, the assumption was by everybody that Indians, Hindus in particular, can't make money. They can't grow because it's simply not a society that is, is interested in risk and investment and so forth. It turns out to be the exact opposite. Enormous talent in India, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, whatever you call it, to make money. Fantastic. And Indians, because India had a dispersed diaspora in East Africa, America now, and elsewhere, they had these international contacts built in. So the Indian companies have taken advantage of this. You see Indian, Indian presence all around the world. Uh, so I think that there's no, no limit to Indian growth as long as the Indian government stays out of the way. The Indian government strategy is, though, to equalize this growth so the poor get a little bit, and it's not just simply the rich getting richer. And there, the, the, the government has a massive scheme of subsidizing the rural poor, uh, a work food-for-work scheme, things which would drive us crazy, but in fact the Indians feel that's politically necessary. We may wind up doing that ourselves, because we're growing a third-world country in our own country. A, a group of people who have no 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 skills at, in the modern society. We may we may have to do that ourselves to get them get them get you know get them into the American mainstream. Uh, For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.